I think the first step is open conversations because I agree, you know, either the feeling that we're looking over their shoulders or the actuality of it, it doesn't, you know, that's, if we're going in full force, that doesn't always yield what we want, which is to build trust and communication. So I think the first thing is to talk with our kids on a regular basis about what they're doing on social media, and hopefully they'll share something, but really why it's important to them. So what are you trying to, you know, so, oh, so you like to be on Instagram a lot. What, you know, what is, what's, what's fun for you there? What's drawing you there? And starting to build an understanding of what their motivations are. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Conventional wisdom tells us that anxiety is bad and should be avoided and treated as a disease. But what if we have that backwards? Could feeling bad be essential to feeling good? That's the contention of Dr. Tracy Dennis Tiwari, a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist and professor of psychology at Hunter College of the City University of New York. She's the author of a new book, Future Tense, why anxiety is good for you, even though it feels bad. Anxiety and depression are the focus of intense interest right now as the country grapples with the mental health fallout from the COVID pandemic. The Surgeon General has warned that young people are facing a, quote, devastating mental health crisis. I began by asking Dr. Dennis Tiwari to explain exactly what anxiety is. Anxiety is nervous, worried apprehension about the uncertain future. So that means it's that that little nervous sense we get when we're thinking around the corner to what could happen. And what could happen could be positive, but it could also be negative. And that's the uncertainty. And so anxiety, because it's this feeling that sends us into the future, like mental time travelers, it is actually meant and evolved to prepare us to respond to that uncertainty so that we can avert disaster and make the positive outcomes we want come true. Kind of the fight or flight response. It, it's fight or flight, but it's a little bit more than that. And, and fight or flight is also part of another emotion we all know well, fear. But there's this really fascinating difference between the two. Fear is present certainty that you have danger. So it's the snake about to strike or you know someone's coming at you with a knife. And that really roots you to the present the present tense in that, in, in a manner of speaking, whereas anxiety makes us into mental time travelers into the future. And that's actually why I called the book future tense to make that distinction. So now it's not about what's happening now, but what's possible in the uncertain future, but it's not all bad because in, with uncertainty, something good could happen as well as something bad. And so that's a really important distinction between fear and anxiety. Well, I'm glad that you separated those. So fear is very much reality-based and imminent harm, and anxiety is just the fear of fear, sort of. In, way, in a way, it is. It's the fear of fear. I also like to say that anxiety is the flip side of hope, because that's the other emotion that sends us into the future where the outcomes are uncertain. So you say that anxiety has gotten a bad rap and that there's an anxiety as disease story. Explain how we got to this place where anxiety is something that has very negative connotations and why you think that's wrong. So we, you know, I've been a psychologist for 20 years and I've seen over that time, amazing science, the science of anxiety 
excellent cognitive behavioral therapy treatments and other treatments, effective anti-anxiety medications for those who need it, self-help, holistic approaches, all of these wonderful approaches. And I've seen them grow and have tried to contribute to that as a scientist over the past 20 years. But then just a few years ago, I sort of looked up uh, past the walls of my lab and looked around like all of us and see that there's still an, inc an incredible crisis of anxiety disorders that we're facing. So that, you know, we have these great treatments, but still over a third of us in the United States, that's a hundred million people plus are on track to develop debilitating anxiety disorders in our lifetime. And there's a huge problem with our youth as well, as we know, tens and tens of millions of them will develop an anxiety disorder before their 18th birthday. So that's a mystery, right? That how can we have these great treatments even before the pandemic, anxiety being on the rise and anxiety disorders. And this is where I believe that our ideas about anxiety, these really false ideas we have about anxiety are part of the problem, are actually getting in our way of preventing and benefiting from solutions out there. And there's two big, uh, I think, false beliefs that we have about anxiety that are causing some of this trouble. One is that, as you mentioned, anxiety is always a disease that it's somehow something like COVID, like cancer, that we have to prevent or eradicate at all costs. Um, the second fallacy is that anxiety is a malfunction, that it's a failure of happiness, of mental health, of well-being. And what these fallacies really don't uh, pay attention to is the fact that anxiety is an emotion. It's an emotion that we evolved to have, and it's distinct from anxiety disorders. Anxiety disorders are only diagnosed when our attempts at coping with anxiety are getting in the way. So that when we avoid anxiety, when we fear anxiety, all these things that these two fallacies actually drive us to do. If we think about it as a disease, we avoid it and eradicate it. If we fear it's a malfunction, we're, we're fearful, we're anxious about our anxiety. All those things inadvertently make anxiety worse. So that when we have these two fallacies, this disease model, it's actually blocking us from, from being able to handle and cope with anxiety, which is the real crisis I think we're facing today. Not so much too much anxiety, but that we've started to not know well enough how to feel anxious and how to cope with it. So you talk about that anxiety can be an ally. Explain what that looks like, because I'm sure many listeners are very confused by this idea of um, positive anxiety, anxiety as an ally, as a, as, a, as a force that you can harness. So explain. Yes, it's a, it's, a, you know, it's a contentious idea in many ways, and it's difficult. And I want to briefly say, too, that in no way do I minimize the suffering that anxiety disorders cause. In no way do I minimize the suffering that just healthy anxiety causes. So, uh, you know, so I really want to acknowledge that. But when I'm talking about anxiety, I'm talking about the emotion of anxiety that evolved along with our ability to think into the future, to be uncomfortable, to be sometimes pain, really painful and even debilitating at times because it needs to grab us and force us to pay attention. So that when we feel anxious, although our instinct is to run away, what it's really trying to tell us, like an ally, is that, wait a second, there's something you need to pay attention to. So that because anxiety is this signal that shows that we're, you know, here we are now and there's this uncertain future and there's a discrepancy between the reality of now and where we want to be. And anxiety, by telling us to pay attention, it gives us information about what we care about. 
and it prepares us to act. Let me give you an example. Um, many of us may have experienced this. Um, I don't know you, if you yourself, David, have experienced this, but say you wake up at four or five in the morning and all those worries are going through your head and you just, you know, it's, you're up, you're up and it's on your mind. And a lot of those worries can be very free floating, right? So, you know, there's just all these thoughts, this, this really, this feeling of dis-ease that we have that goes along with anxiety. And then you start zoning in on it. Now, if you just feel like it's a malfunction, you're going to try to eradicate it. You'll get out of bed, you'll ignore it, you'll, you'll do whatever you need to do to feel better. But if you take a moment and think about it as information, as not necessarily a sign of a disorder or a disease, you'll say, well, what's going on? Okay, am I I'm thinking a little bit about, you know, that fight I had with my husband and well, is that bothering me? Well, now we, we resolve that, that's okay. Uh, now what is it? I'm, you know, work, that work thing has been on my mind. Maybe that's bothering me. And this, you know, these worries are about that. And I'm like, well, no, I think I have a handle on that. And then you're like, oh, wait a second. I've been waking up every morning for two weeks with searing pain in my stomach. Maybe that, maybe that, that's a smoke alarm going off. Maybe these worries I'm having are actually a signal that this is something I should care about and, and try to really understand what's going on and seek help. Now that's a very concrete example of a, you know, of something that could be potentially dangerous to us, like a, like a health problem, but it really applies to all sorts of aspects of our life. You're anxious only when you care. And, you know, it was Kierkegaard, one of my favorite, he's kind of like the patron saint of anxiety, the uh, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. I know that sounds funny to anyone, especially who knows any Kierkegaard, because he was a very doomy and gloomy guy. Um, but he said 180 years ago, whosoever learns to be anxious in the right way has learned the ultimate. And so that's what I mean by saying anxiety can be an ally. It can help us pay attention to what we care about. And it actually moves us far beyond the three Fs, fear, fight, and flight, because it also does things like it triggers the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine in our brain, which is the neurotransmitter that helps us pursue rewards. We think about it as the pleasure hormone, but what it actually also does is orient us towards things we want and helps us uh, you know, marshal our resources to make our dreams come true. So it triggers dopamine. It triggers oxytocin, the social bonding hormone, which pushes us to reach out to others and seek support. One of the best solutions to anxiety to reach out to others. So it's this much more complex creature, <laughs> this, this part of us. It's a feature of being human. Mm -hmm. It's not a bug. And I really want to start having those conversations. As you mentioned earlier, you know, we are right now hearing about a adolescent mental health crisis. Um, and the numbers really are staggering. You know, um, recently there's been new reporting on it and, you know, more than half of adolescents report feelings of hopelessness and depression in the last two weeks. Yeah. And I forget the precise number, but it was like in the 20% zone of people who'd had, you know, young people who'd had suicidal thoughts, um, just staggering, you know, to consider how yes. many young people are going around with these kinds of feelings. So you talk about how to let go of anxiety that isn't useful. Talk about what that looks like. There's a couple ways to think about that. And, you know, as a, as a mom of a teen, this is not just a professional interest, but this is a personal interest as well when we think about uh, teen mental health. So there's a great study that will illustrate what I think is one of the most powerful ways uh, to, uh, about, uh, to listen to anxiety and to um, think about how to 
kind of understand it differently so that we can help our kids. Um, there was a, a great treatment and several, several uh, clinical trials coming out of the Yale Child Study Center that Ellie Leibowitz and colleagues have published over just the past few years. And it's about an intervention um, called SPACE, um, which uh, is short for, you know, essentially supportive emotional parenting um, therapy. So what they did in their first study on this intervention is they, they had kids who were already at the clinic for social anxiety and other kinds of disorders. And these are kids struggling. So they were on track to receive cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the gold standard treatments. But half of these children, um, they, the families agreed to um, wait to have them access cognitive behavioral therapy. And instead, only the parents received therapy. Now this therapy was actually only directed at one thing, which was to help parents stop over-accommodating their children's anxieties, which means if you have a child who's um, uh, deathly afraid of getting on a plane, and now it's starting to get in the way of living and it's starting to generalize to other things, most caring parents would think, well, I'm just not gonna make them get on that plane. I need to support them and comfort them. And so all family vacations now are just drivable or they stop taking family vacations. But the problem is when you avoid these experiences of anxiety, it's literally an engine to make anxiety more out of control and you prevent having, you. it's an opportunity cost in terms of opportunities to learn how to cope with those difficult feelings. And so the parents were simply trained to not avoid something like going on the plane or if their kid's socially anxious, not avoid having them try to go to parties little by little or a school event and support them through the anxiety instead of trying to take away all the anxiety. And they did this for six weeks. They trained the parents and the parents were really got really good at this. And after six weeks, those kids whose only parents received therapy reduced clinical, um, and 87% of them actually had clinical reductions in anxiety severity comparable to what the kids showed who received therapy themselves. So it was this beautiful illustration of the ways that when we realize that what we really can help our kids do to face anxieties, they are, you know, there's vulnerability, but that doesn't mean they're fragile. When it comes to anxiety, we have to think of them as anti-fragile, which means like the immune system, the, emotion, the emotional system needs to be challenged, you know, with support, not just thrown into the deep end but you challenge, you teach kids how to cope. And the key to knowing how to feel good is knowing how to feel bad, how to feel anxious, and how to work through those difficult feelings. So the flip side, the other way to say what you're saying is that parents are part of the problem. Parents are creating or enabling anxiety and they I would have say the power to change that. Right, I, I, I might phrase it instead that parents are part of the solution. Because anyone who's a parent out there, and I, you know, a lot of the work I do is actually with parents. I know the pressure on us. I know that it seems like there's a million boxes to tick. And if you feel like you only get 99 out of 100, you're going to fail as a parent. And that's not how it works with anxiety. What happens is very well-intentioned parents who are just trying to support their kids who are clearly suffering are trying to make it easier for them. But this, but this shift in mindset where parents know, hey, listen, my kid isn't that fragile. And actually, if I give them opportunities to learn to cope with anxiety, even if it's debilitating at this point, they can gain those skills, much like the immune system gains the, the know-how to fight off viruses and bacteria when you expose them to it, like, uh, you know, like uh, getting a vaccine. I think that part of the um, 
fear, the, the, the root of the fear of how parents are behaving is an, a new awareness about suicide and spiking rates of adolescent suicide. So you're kind of advocating playing with fire a little more, it sounds like, you know, where parents should feel comfortable dealing with what can be for parents very scary things, seeing their child uncomfortable, maybe even suffering a little. And yet parents are hearing and are aware of suicide as one of the things in the mix. So how do you navigate this terrain? How do you know when you're not pushing or allowing things to go too far? I, uh, I, you know, I will make a distinction between anxiety and suicide, although I think you're very right to talk about these mental health problems as, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, suicidality is going together. And I think it's, um, that's right, we parents are very concerned and the whole impulse is to support and not push them too far. I ha you know, I happen to do research on suicide as well and I have an NIH funded study we're running right now. And we know even from the suicide literature, which is so frightening to think of your child in that kind of pain, we know that talking about suicide does not increase suicidality. We know that engaging the experience that kids are going through is the only way that you can actually prevent there from being undetected feelings of hopelessness, undetected feelings of um, emptiness, you know, purposelessness. And those are the kinds of feelings that we're seeing, you know, during this pandemic period, we see that increasing, you know, what do kids look forward to anymore? What do they see as their purpose? How do they find, you know, a way to go on when they are faced with a lot of challenges? Not talking about those things is, is never the solution. So I would say to parents, trust that you and your child actually have the strength to talk about these things. Know that as long as you're open and listening and ready to get your child help when they need it, it will never do harm. Hmm. And know that our kids, when they know that you aren't afraid of talking about that most difficult and terrifying thing, it becomes less terrifying to them. You study the impact of social media on teen mental health and on the parent-child relationship. Talk about what you have been finding. You know, it's, it's also that there's another area where we parents feel at sea uh, a lot of time because it seems that the digital world is so um, confusing and different um, than how we grew up or what we expect of the real world. But I think it's helpful to understand that while there are very toxic aspects of how social media work, about how um, it's designed to suck kids in, and um, the, the ready availability of constant social comparisons and, and constant getting lost down social media rabbit holes, those are, those are uh, unhelpful and in, for some kids dangerous qualities of social media. That doesn't mean that all screen time is bad. And if we take this view that screens are destroying a generation, I think that just doesn't help coming up with solutions because we're not gonna get rid of screens. So I think it's wiser and what, we, what the research suggests is that the best thing we can do as parents is help our kids become informed digital citizens, which means to be knowledgeable, to know what kinds of use of, of digital will make us feel worse, will do more harm. And kids already know a lot of this. So there's an interesting distinction in the literature between active and passive use on social media. So active use, you know, it's you're creating content, you're posting, you're seeking out information, you're doing these active things. And 
that sometimes is good and it's sometimes not so good. But it's really when it comes to anxiety, especially, it's the passive use. Now, passive use is things like you're just doing, you know, doom scrolling, you know, doing constant scrolling through everyone's media feeds and, you know, just, you know, thinking about, oh my God, they have a great life. They have a great life. And, you know, and just, but not really engaging. It's really for the purpose, um, as some research has shown, for what's called experiential avoidance. So you go on automatic pilot. You, you numb yourself out. You're upset with something that happened today. You just get lost in your screen for four hours, which we know is so easy to do. Now, when kids who are, are struggling with anxiety in their day-to-day -day lives get online and then just start passively scrolling through, getting lost in social media, what they might actually be doing is trying to avoid the difficult feelings from the real world. And that should be a red flag for parents where we know, you know, they're not creating some, you know, creative new video or they're not, um, communicating with new people online. They're doing, you know, they're not creating music online. They're, they're doing these passive things that's sort of like numbing themselves out, eating a bag of chips. And if that's every day, hours and hours a day, now don't get me wrong, once in a while, we all want to do that, right? I, I binge, flicks, binge uh, Netflix once in a while myself. But if they're doing it day after day, night after night, staying up till 3 a.m., that's a big red flag. And those are the kinds of use that we can help talk with our kids about you know what, that's the junk food of social media and digital and it's not the healthy. So you need to find balance and let me help you find balance and get to what maybe the root of all this is. So the nature of a kid's use of social media is you don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, you're not looking over their shoulder and if you are, they're very quick <laughs> to hide yeah. the screen. Yeah. So what in your view as somebody who looks at this does a healthy relationship with social media, with screens look like? Is it putting parental controls and time limits on, which of course is, is something that causes a lot of conflict? Um, what would you suggest? I think the first step is open conversations because I agree, you know, either the feeling that we're looking over their shoulders or the actuality of it, it doesn't, you know, that's, if we're going in full force, that doesn't always yield what we want, which is to build trust and communication. So I think the first thing is to talk with our kids on a regular basis about what they're doing on social media and hopefully they'll share something, but really why it's important to them. So what are you trying to, you know, so, oh, so you like to be on Instagram a lot. What, you know, what is, what's, what's fun for you there? What's drawing you there? And starting to build an understanding of what their motivations are. And then as you're having those conversations and as you build trust and they know you're not gonna just, you know, come down on them and try to get them off screens all the time, you start to get little hints. You start to say, oh, wait a second. Um, you're talking a lot about this one group on your Instagram, on Instagram that say mean things to each other. Or you, you know, and I think parents should note if their kids are using cell phones in the bedroom, smartphones in the bedroom. I think that's, you know, I think that that, that use of digital is one of the bigger disrupt, biggest disruptors of kids' sleep. And that's a huge problem when they get sucked in. So parents should be aware of, are they using digital at night? Try to have some conversation and control over that. But as you look for those red flags, as you have those conversations, you can start helping your teen uh, make better choices. Now, you know, sometimes it's much more conflictual than that. And the earlier we start with these conversations, the better. But that doesn't mean that we can't still have them. People take medicine for anxiety. Mm -hmm. They take medicine for headaches. You know, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking this. She's trying to tell me that headaches are good because when I have anxiety, you know, my doctor has now prescribed a pill to make it go mm -hmm. away. 
What about anxiety medication? When is the time right to go that route instead of embracing anxiety? I think for people who are suffering debilitating anxiety, um, that medication can be extremely helpful. Now, people should be aware of the history of benzodiazepines, which are the most common anti-anxiety med now. I have a whole chapter in the book on it, actually, as along with sort of this culture of numbing pain and the opioid crisis. And I think of those two as going together. So a gold standard treatment when you're suffering from an anxiety disorder is to receive cognitive behavioral therapy and then to take medication as needed to bring you back to a baseline so you can benefit from therapy. Because when we're really overwhelmed with anxiety and panic, we need that extra support and help. But it's best in combination with therapy and for a short term. That is how it was designed. And that's what clinical studies show is the most effective way to use it. But unfortunately, we have veered away from that completely. So we should be aware ourselves that we're often prescribed anti-anxiety meds too soon with any even small feeling of discomfort. But that's that actually because they're addictive, because they're habit forming, and because they can actually have can have led to many overdose deaths uh, in the past decade or two, well-documented ones, that we should be more cautious uh, and use them as a tool, a temporary tool rather than a final solution, because they are not a final solution. What do you hope people take away from your writings and speakings about anxiety? is what's the bottom line and and why you wrote this book the bottom line is that i hope people will reconsider that anxiety doesn't have to be a burden or a frightening thing to immediately eradicate in their life and to think of it as uh, many scientists do especially emotion scientists that it is uh, something that gives you information that gives you energy and that can actually, when you lean into the sharp points uh, of those emotions that are difficult, that those are some of the most incredible and powerful sources of growth and of information about what matters to you and is really there, evolved to be there with you as an ally instead of an enemy. Okay, well, Tracy Dennis Tewari, I wanna thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David, it's been a pleasure speaking with you.